Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. And I have to tell you something, people. I'm, I'm pretty excited. This Wednesday, and this Thursday, I'm going to a uh, Phillies game. And what's funny is, it's a day game. And I'm going with my friend, Mark Esposito, who I've known since um, first grade. So that's a long, long time. And last year, I was supposed to go to a day game with him and my friend, Mike Colino. But as you remember, last year, I had those health problems. So I called him. I had to go to the hospital for four days. And I called and said, you know, call my girlfriend lovely Joanne and I said you know give them the tickets because I can't go so I didn't get to go and then of course this year when um, we all plan to go my friend Mike just had a hernia operation so and which people hernias are like Everyone has hernias I know now. I, I thought a few guests who had them. My friend Mark has to get an operation. I have one, but I can't. It's mine's not bad. And I, the doctor said it's fine. But now Mike can't go. So I just decided I was talking to those guys. I said Mark's hoping we don't plan to go to a baseball game, all three of us for next year because he knows it's turn. So, but we'll be in Philly. It's going to be great. And uh, my guest today is from the Philadelphia area, and he was a writer for Tonight Show. And he has a great documentary that he directed and wrote and produced coming up. His name is Joe Medeiros. How you doing, Joe? I'm doing good, Steve. I'm envious of you going to the Phillies game. Are, uh, you, are, are you a big fan? Oh, I'm a huge fan. I watch them every day on MLB.com, which is one of the advantages of living out here on the West Coast because the game starts at four o'clock our time. That's and it's just just the perfect time. It's sort of the end of my work day. You know, I can still get a few things done. I put the game on or else uh, you know in the warm weather i'll take my computer outside and sit in the pool see that's you know that's what that's <laughs> how that's, la is that huh? i know that's great watch <laughs> but see that's what i hate though and I, I don't get used to it it's like with when my girlfriend came out to watch an eagles game now i go at 10 in the morning and that's a little tough yeah but it's just like but if they're on tv i stay at home but with the phillies same thing it's like four is great or like if they have a day game like this week it's a one o'clock game back right. east but you get used to the four o'clock, and then when I go back east, I'm putting. You know, she's at work still. I'm like, all right, the Phillies game's gonna start at four, but no, it starts at seven. Uh, yeah, and it kills your whole night. <laughs> no, were you, were you, yeah, were you always a big Phillies fan? Yeah, yeah, yeah. From the time I was a kid, you know, I played ball, and I was. Uh, that's the only sport I really played. Okay. My dad was a big, you know, baseball and Phillies fan. So I used to sit there and. T- well, it's so funny. I used to watch when they played the West Coast teams when they played, you know, San Diego mm-hmm. or the Dodgers, and my parents would. Go, I'd go upstairs and get in bed, and you would put the TV on with no volume at like ten at night, and it was a big, <laughs> it's a big treat. So you're you're from originally? You said you're originally from South yeah. Philadelphia. Yeah, I'm from Six and South. I grew up in Ben Salem. Okay. And uh, when my wife and I uh, got married, we lived for 13 years in Glenside, Pennsylvania. Okay. Now, now I know we had talked earlier about the writing. Gene Parrott was on before, and uh, if people remember, if Gene was this, a phenomenal writer who had the Gene Parrott's Roundtable. Um, you went to him for writing, but did you always wanted to write, like when you were in college or high school, or did you always have this goal of being a writer, or what did you want to do as a kid? Well, as a kid, I, I wanted to be a, uh, an archaeologist, okay. <laughs> you know, a baseball player. Uh, then when I started getting college age, I thought I was going to go for engineering. But then one day I got the uh, catalog for Temple University, and I saw that they had a film school. And, and to me, that was like, what? In Philadelphia, I could study film? How does this work? So I, I really became fascinated with that. So I went to Temple for film, and I happened to have a professor there. Uh, I took a couple of advertising courses, uh, Howard Rice, who owned the, uh, an ad agency in Philadelphia. And he encouraged me. He thought that I was really good and that I might have a future in, in advertising. And I sort of enjoyed it, and coming up, you know, coming up a little clever uh, you know, plays on words right. and headlines and things. So when I got out of... Um, 
college, I, I went into advertising. Okay. And I was in there for 15 years. Well, it's weird because my mom, actually, my mom's temple, uh, oh, okay. she grad. my That's mom cool. graduated in 1952 okay. in marketing, and there was no females in marketing back then. Like, well, she was her. the only girl in the classes, because back then they thought... You'd go to college, you become a teacher or a nurse, then you'd have kids. Yeah, right. Yeah, she couldn't, when she interviewed, she didn't wear her engagement ring because they, they wouldn't hire you. Yeah, sure. But now it's funny that you said you went to the film school because I know there's a writer named Chris Mancini who was a mm-hmm. uh, Philly comic and he used to always come to the comedy clubs and he was going to film school. But it must have been so different when you went <laughs> like, compared to now. It's like, even like, I mean, I mean, what was the difference? It was like Stone Age. You, you were making films like the Flintstones, yeah. carving them out of rocks. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, back then it was Super 8 and. Uh, 16 millimeter film, obviously no video, no instant editing. And um, Temple was very documentary oriented, which ironically, uh, as someone who's just uh, wrote and produced a documentary, uh, I I wasn't interested in documentaries back then. I I was more interested in uh, writing scripts and doing fictional films. So anything that I ever did as a project was mostly uh, a scripted. Okay. Now, what were some of your what were some of your film influences back at that time? Because I think everyone has different films, and they went wow. I mean, you said you saw the film you saw the film school, but you must have had some kind of interest as you were getting older before you went to school in film. Else, you, the film wouldn't have caught your eye. Well, yeah, you know, as a kid, uh, I was fascinated by the big uh, blockbusters of, of the day, Lawrence of Arabia, okay. you know, one of my favorite films, uh, and, uh, you know, monster movies like King Kong, you know, things like that. I, I was always very much a, a film watcher, but, you know, in college, I, I became fascinated with silent films. Uh, I certainly discovered Cheatin', uh, Cheatin', Cheatin', which is Chaplin and Keaton together. Okay. Uh, yeah, Chaplin and Keaton, and... Uh, you know some of the uh, the people at the time that were that were very popular. You know Stanley Kubrick, and uh, you know Truffaut, and and things like that. Uh, Woody Allen. You know I love him as a comic and, and as a writer, and certainly as a filmmaker. So yeah, I, I thought that they, those were my main influences. And so, what, what was your student film about? Do you remember? <laughs> Well, I did too. One was a documentary based on my brother's uh, garage band called called Kid Group. My brother Steve had a band, and they thought they were going to be famous. Were they kids? Or? Yeah, when the kids, you know, they were like 14, 15 okay. years old. So, you know, we, we <laughs> shot them rehearsing in my mother's basement. Where uh, I was in a band too when I was, uh, you know, a teenager, and we rehearsed in the basement. My parents were very uh, encouraging. See, that's good. That's good. My my brother was a drummer, mm-hmm. and. Um, we hated. I hated it because first they put his drums in because our basement would flood sometimes. <laughs> so we had a sump pump, and and so they put his drums in in downstairs. And I'm like, Mom, I'm trying to watch TV, but he has to practice. Sure. So then they said, okay, we'll move it downstairs. But as a punishment, they took down our ping pong table and used that as a elevator for his drums so they wouldn't get ruined oh. by the way. So I couldn't win. I was, no, like, right. I was like, this sucks. You know? <laughs> and I was like, this is awful. And my sister played the cello which and the French horn, which I would hear in her room upstairs and I'd be like, oh my, because there's no, I mean, she was good. Yeah. But you don't want to hear, you know, when you come home from trying to watch, you know, your cartoons, you don't want to hear the cello no. or the French horn. No, 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 not at that time. Now, what did you play? I played guitar. You know, I was uh, influenced by the Beatles when they were on Ed Sullivan. It was my 13th birthday when they were there in February of 19 1964 and I asked for a guitar 
uh, for my 13th birthday. My dad went down to a pawn shop on South Street okay. in, in Philadelphia, and he got a guitar and an amplifier for $40. And the amplifier was so cheap that if you faced it the wrong way, it would pick up the radio. <laughs> so I'd be practicing, and all of a sudden I'd hear... You'd know, be like, I'm really good. <laughs> yeah, really. I'd hear the song coming out of there going, hey, that's not me, but I like it. So um, do you still play? Yeah. Okay. I, I mean, not as much as I uh, you know would like to, but I have a, uh, a CD out of Papa Joe Grappa. You, you can search on the internet for papajoegrappa.com. What kind of music is that? It's blues. Okay. You know, I mean, uh, I... Uh, you know, I'm a decent blues guitar player, and I used to go to a lot of blues jams here in L.A., and, um, you know, I'd get up, and if you're not calling the tune, if you're not the guy singing, you're at the mercy of somebody who is. Right. So they would call some song that I would not know, and you look like an idiot up there. So I started going up and singing. I don't have a really good singing voice, so what I started to do was write funny blues songs. Okay. So at least, you know, the people are sitting there drinking their beer, and all of a sudden they hear these lyrics about, I'm singing about, uh, I, I want some medical marijuana, I feel glaucoma coming on. Okay, okay. So, you know, you hear lyrics like that in a blues club, it's like you're going to pay attention, and you really don't care as much how the guy sounds. So that's sort of what I did. So you hung out in Philly for a while, yeah. and you were, you were doing the advertising. Mm -hmm. Now, were you, did you guys do some big campaigns, or were you, were you, was it boring you a little bit, or did you like, because you were writing? I mean, what did you, what did you were you a dig in your job or were you on the fence? Well, yeah, I liked my job. Okay. It, you know, it was a great bunch of people and worked uh, for some you know interesting accounts. We had the, the, the Philadelphia Spectrum. Okay. And we handled the Flyers. That's cool. And, uh, you know, a couple of the small, you know, regional car accounts. We got to do radio and TV, which is what I wanted to do. But, you know, I always had the bug to be out here. Okay. And in show business. So I uh, took a correspondence course in joke writing. That was at Gene's, or was no? This was okay. in, uh, before I met Gene. This was something called the Hollywood School of Comedy Writing that I found in the back of a writing magazine, and you know it was so outdated. This was like the eighties when when I took it. But they're referring to the shows that were in the fifties. Okay. <laughs> You know, talking about when you watch, uh, you know, Make Room for Daddy with Danny Thomas, which I'm sure most of your listeners never even heard of. You know, pay attention to the. But the, the thing that it did for me um, was that it got me to to write every day. Okay. And, and it became a discipline uh, because, as you know, you know, if you want to get good at anything, like your sister with the cello, I'm sure she practiced every day. Yeah. Yeah. You have to do. You have to practice your craft. So I had a limited time to finish this course. So I know to get through all these lessons, I had to do so many, you know, uh, exercises per day. I would get up at five o'clock in the morning before I went to my do job at uh, advertising, and I would write jokes. So you, I mean, so you're writing jokes, not sketches. You're writing jokes. Well, I mean, the, the course started with jokes because okay. jokes are the building blocks of sketches. Right. So you would do jokes, sketches, and then a full script at the end of the course. So you're doing this for how long? Did you, how long did this course? Take? It was two years. Okay, now. What do you do after that? Because a lot of times you sit there and you're like, back, back, you know, in the day when we could write jokes, you know, when faxes were big, you could fax jokes to Tonight Show. It was <laughs> yeah, big, big no dog production then, and stuff yeah. like that and faxing. But And I know Tony DeSena had said how he yeah. got the writing job. He would just, he was sending, mailing the Tonight Show jokes and jokes. But now, were you getting more confident in your joke writing as you took this class? Well, what happened was I found a couple of markets, you know, people like yourself, like uh, people on the radio that were looking for jokes, and there were publications that went to, to DJs, and they paid like two fifty to three fifty a joke. That's okay. $2.50. Right. Uh, so I started writing jokes, topical material, and sending it to them, and much to my surprise, they actually started buying it. So to me, there's nothing that's more of an incentive to keep working at something right. than getting a check in the mail. 
So that became my daily thing. I would do my lessons, and I, then I would sell basically my homework. Okay, okay. So that so you're sending um, just that was going across the country. You're finding out these and just yeah. Them. I wrote for one guy in Texas. Uh, I wrote. I started writing for a comedian out here in L.A. Another guy up in New York. I eventually got the two disc jockeys uh, in in Detroit who did a morning show, and they were looking for sketches. So I kept trying to find people that I could send material to, and and. Well, back then, I mean, how would you find the comics? Because it's not like now, like the internet, you can find anything. <laughs> yeah. Like back then, it's. I mean, you. I mean, especially living in Philadelphia, the Philadelphia area. Right. You don't really have the access, and you know, I mean, Philadelphia had a good comedy scene, but it's not like people were buying jokes. Right. From, you know, but how did you find the comics? Well, there there was a. Uh, I guess there still is a magazine called Writers Market, which okay. is a a magazine for uh, you know and about writers giving you tips how to write. Of course, I would never read the articles. I would go to the uh, the classified ads in the back because I found the comics, you know, advertising for people to write jokes for them, greeting card companies, uh, these particular publications. You know, send us your one-liners. We'll pay you, uh, you know, X number of jokes. So I, I would buy that magazine every month and, and look to see if there was anybody else who was looking for material. Okay. So you start doing that, and you're you're doing your job, and you're waking up early, and you're you're writing the jokes. Now. At what point do you find out about the round table? I know Gene's Gene. I mean, that was a big thing in Philly. I talked to you off air about right. getting my joke published was like the biggest yeah. thing because <laughs> he didn't take a lot in the back and it was a little leaflet. And I think it was so funny because back then I think he was based in Sherman Oaks, right. and that's like for now. I mean, I live in Burbank, so it's right next door, but that was like a million miles away. Sure. You know what I mean? But then now I look back at it and I'm like, wow. How did you find out about that? Was it from one of these publications that you were reading? No, Gene wrote a book. Um, it was called How to Write and Sell Your uh, Sense of Humor. I think he's retitled it uh, uh, since then. He came out with another edition, of which he asked me to write the foreword. Okay, well, that's awesome. Nice. But, but I wrote, uh, uh, I mean, I found his book, and in the book, um, I got a lot of great tips. And it just so happened that a friend of mine, a friend of hers, brother, if you follow the chain of uh, command here, basically I had a connection. This friend of mine's friend's brother grew up with Gene okay. and knew his address here in uh, in L.A. So I wrote him. I, I said that I, you know, I was a guy from Philadelphia like he was. Right. I was inspired by his story as well. He worked for General Electric. He started writing jokes on the side. He sent them to Phyllis Diller. She started buying them. Eventually he moved to L.A. He, he got a job with Laugh-In, uh, Carol Burnett. That's amazing. His, his yeah, Bob I mean, Hope's head writer. And yeah. I said, that's what I want to do. Okay. So I wrote to Gene and couple of months went by I never heard from him so I said all right I'm not going to give up let me write him again but this time I looked in his book because in his book he said if you want to make it in show business you have to network with people in the business if you see somebody you you admire get in touch with them ask them for advice so I quoted what he wrote in his book to him all right and he wrote me back like immediately and he said never since my grandmother have I been shamed into writing (laughs) 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 so I mean he uh, gave me a couple of tips. Uh, he said, uh, if you want to get into this business, uh, write for better paying comedians. You know, at the time, you know, I was making like $40,000 in advertising. I'd have to sell a two, two bucks a joke, 20,000 jokes in order to make right. my salary. So that made sense to me. And he also said to join his roundtable group, uh, which I did. And they had a convention here in LA in 1988. My wife and I came out. I went to the convention. And it was a great experience because, you know, as, a, as somebody writing jokes, you're sitting sitting in your room at your typewriter at the time, just cranking the stuff out. You don't know if you're funny or not. Right. 
as, as a comic, you're up in front of uh, people. You know, you go on you stage know. and the crowd, if they don't like it, I mean, you, you have at least a few times to try it, then you go, yeah, yeah. okay, we'll scrap that. But as a writer, you don't know. It's exactly. true because you, I mean, it may seem funny to you, but I think also what happens is as you do it for a while, and you probably like this because you've written a lot of jokes, you know when it's funny now. And I think it's a thing where like, but in the beginning, you're not sure because especially if you're not getting that stage feedback, right. it must be scary somewhat. Well, yeah, I mean, well, believe me, sometimes you still don't know. I mean, you never... <laughs> Right. It's 100%. If you knew 100% was what was going to work, you'd be uh, the funniest man in the world. Exactly. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, so we, um, I went to this convention, and there I learned a couple of tips from other people. There was a guy from Kansas City who was writing for Bob Hope. And I said, how'd you write for Bob Hope? You're in Kansas City. He said, Bob came to my town, so I wrote a bunch of jokes up and dropped it off at the hotel uh, front desk and said this is for Mr. Hope and they delivered it to him and that's how we got to Mr. Hope okay but I heard from somebody else at Jay Leno who I knew the name I had never really seen him perform I knew he had been around for years uh, he was buying jokes because uh, he was doing his act and also guest hosting for Johnny Carson I watched Jay on Johnny Carson I recorded it uh, he said he was coming to the Philadelphia area I typed out his monologue, so I got the rhythm of how he spoke. Okay. And then I wrote a bunch of jokes, and my wife drove it out to the box office of where he was performing. 12.30 in the morning, our phone rings. Of course, when your phone rings at that time of night, you think, who's in the hospital? Who had a car crash? Who's exactly. Dead? That's so funny. Yeah. I do that because my mom is suffering from Alzheimer's now. Yeah, and exactly. Think, and she'll call me. And before my dad passed away, she was like, I'm like, Mom why is everything okay oh yeah I just we got something from your alumni association <laughs> like mom you can't call me at this time and it's like I was about to do a show I'm like I worry yeah, but yeah no, you're exactly. right so the phone rings and I pick it up you know hello he's like hey Joe this is uh, Jay Leno yeah yeah I, I like your stuff I want you to send, send me some more material so well, that's, that, awesome, that's how it started this was in August of 88 I started writing jokes for him now how many were you turning were you, were you sending them every day or what was your weekly or no I was sending them every day how many uh, you know as many as I could write in the in the three hours that I that I worked I mean he was on once a week so I mean I would write every day maybe you know save up a bunch save them send them like maybe six or seven pages worth of jokes now how would you do the research because it's topical that's one thing it's not like now with the internet I mean did you just go out and buy magazines and newspapers or USA Today okay that's what a lot of people say that was my bible because they boil it down they make it simple I find that if I have too much information, I get overwhelmed, and I can't focus, and it's, and it's harder to write a joke. But USA Today is so simple. <laughs> and they break it down, because they'd always break down the, the state things. So you could right. always find something quirky, let's say, in West Virginia, which I think would probably be a good writing source. And also, you know, if you're dealing with a local paper, they're dealing with local news. You deal with the Philadelphia Inquirer at the time, they're dealing with Philadelphia issues mostly. You know, the international stuff is somewhere else in the paper if it's not a big story on the front page. USA Today, you know, everything that was contemporary and top of people's minds is in the paper. Okay. So, I mean, that's the paper that I use, and I would sit and write jokes every day. And now you'd fax them? Is that back then? Uh, yeah, but, you know, back then I got, you know, big... Huge, you know, it was like an eighteen hundred dollar. My uh, first job out of college, I sold fax machines, and I sold some <laughs> engineer at some firm in Philly. Like we had, a, we were the only one person who sold Xerox. It was like a ten thousand dollar fax machine. I 
I was brand new. I had no idea. I got the call. I just started talking to this guy. And I was so relieved when I said, do you want us to do the install and do your demonstration? I'm sitting there going, I have no idea what's going on. But he's like, oh, no, no, I'll figure it out myself. I was like, thank you. But that's so funny. They were so expensive. Oh, very expensive. We all left because then all of a sudden, Everyone started undercutting each other. I was like, oh, well, you know, I, I didn't sell a copier because I had a small car. <laughs> I didn't right. have a van. <laughs> and uh, I was like, I'll sell the faxes. But it's just weird because this is your faxing. Because I remember when you fax it, it was a big thing. Yeah. Well, the first ones, you had to actually put the phone in this little uh, <laughs> thing and those big drums. <laughs> it was very industrial. <laughs> but, you know, it did the job. It got the jokes from Philadelphia to the West Coast. And so you're sending it to him and, he, and he's starting to use them. Starting to use them. And then he came to Atlantic City and I went down to see him. And, you know, he was talking to me and goes, you know, I can't promise anything, but, you know, NBC is, is letting me put together a staff because he was guest hosting every week. He didn't have his own staff of paid writers and he wasn't using Johnny's guys. He was using friends and, you know, freelancers like myself. He said, you know, would you be interested? And I said, well, yeah. You know, I mean, I can't move out to L.A. unless I get some sort of a, because I had a, you know, a house and a wife right. and, and two kids at the time. And, and uh, so... He said, well, well, well this is next year, we'll talk about it next year. I get back to, to work, Monday morning, I'm in the office, the phone rings, it's Jay, he goes, yeah, I talk to NBC, you start tomorrow. Really? Yeah. So he was, he was bringing you out as... Well, I didn't go out. Okay. So this is in December of 88, so f I worked out of my house uh, in, in Pennsylvania for four years while he was guest hosting. And then when he took over the show in 92, that's when we came out. Because you you're doing a freelance for him, and then finally in 92, he said, right. when he changed No, no, I was on staff. I mean, I was saying you were yeah, staff, right. but I'm you're working out here on staff. Okay, then on staff, then, then then staff in Philly. Yeah. But so then what happened was, when you know he was taking over the show, did you know you were going to have to move out, and were you looking forward to moving out? Well, it's kind of like we always thought we would eventually move out. I mean, there was nothing, there was no timetable. Uh, in 88 to 92 I didn't know until 91 when I went to get, it, get my USA Today at the 7-Eleven front page story Johnny Carson retiring next year okay it's like what so yeah, I obviously called up Jay he said yeah he's taking he's leaving so you're going to have to come out now when you were doing that as on the staff back east were you still with your advertising job or you, did you leave that no once uh, I got the contract in the mail okay <laughs> And I saw that this was a legitimate offer, and they were paying me guild minimum, which okay. is very good. It was more than I was making in advertising. Okay. And I really couldn't do both. I mean, I wanted to do a good job. This is what I always had dreamed of doing, you know, writing for television. Uh, so I, uh, I gave my notice. Now, in the beginning, were you just writing jokes, or were you expanding and doing... Because I know some shows of guys who write jokes, and some shows of guys who write, like, the skit stuff or the, the right. headlines. Was, were you just responsible for the monologue or are we also doing cause he, I think he's always done the uh, weird headlines and all that well yeah he always did headlines but you know, he was doing that himself with okay. a few of his friends at the time but but no I mean I was uh, coming up with ideas for bits prop bits mostly uh, Christmas products you know all the, the weird gadgets that the prop department builds summer products uh, I would come up with, with those but it was mostly monologue uh, because that's what you know that's his hallmark Right. So you're doing that, so you move out. Now, now do you know where you're going to move? I mean, because like when I came out, <laughs> I was, I, me and my ex-wife were living in San Diego, but I would come up here because uh, I was trying to get stuff going. I was waiting tables at Planet Hollywood because they had one in San Diego I worked at, and then they went up in Beverly Hills. And I found Hollywood just because my friend knew this guy, and I paid, I was only here four days a week, and I paid like 380 for this little studio. <laughs> and I'm glad I found Burbank because I love Burbank, but where did you first look when you moved up here? Uh, we looked where we live now, which is Westlake Village. Uh, okay. I met a guy, actually, uh, 
my life is just filled with these weird tangential okay. connections. I told you the, the Gene Perry right. came through a friend. Um, one of my clients in advertising was a bank in Philadelphia, First Trust Bank, and owned by the Green family. Great family. We're still in touch. One of their uh, relatives, one of the brothers, the Green brothers, lived in L.A. because he wanted to be a comedy writer. Okay. A guy named Ben Green. And I came out here, and he knew Gene. He was part of that round table. So I met Ben, and Ben lived out in Agora, the Agora, Agora area in Westlake Village. So he recommended that we go out there. We fell in love with it, and uh, and that's kind of where we st- we've been ever since. That's that's up, that's. Far, far school value. It's a bit of a commute. Yeah. What's the, because uh, and you were working in Burbank then yeah, too. So yeah, that, I mean, that's like 30, 35 miles each way. Is that the 101? Oh, yeah. Because I, I, <laughs> I, I used to do marketing, corporate marketing, and our, our office was in Encino. And it, from even from Burbank to Encino, the 101, I try to explain to people when they go, well, how far is the beach from you? I go, well, it's, you know, 15 miles down the center line. Oh, that must be great. I said, no, no, 15 miles means like an hour. And yeah. they don't understand it. And I mean, in Agora Hills, the 101 is just one of those roads. There's always traffic. Yeah. You can never tell. I mean, it's crazy. Sometimes it takes you a half hour. Sometimes it takes you an hour and a half. So you, you get the job with Jay mm-hmm. and, and you move out here. You had the job with Jay and sure. you move out here. Now, would you be going, what was your, what was your day like? Did you get there at eight in the morning or what was I mean, because before you're working at home, so you probably it probably had to be a little different now, because now you're actually going in, sitting with the writers, going in and have to come to Burbank every day. I mean, there's nothing like working out of home. I mean, <laughs> when you get up, you're like, okay, but when you do that, it must be. Was it? Did you fi- have to get more discipline? I mean, you sound like you're very disciplined before, but was it just a very? Was it we're getting used to? No, I mean, I commuted to work ever since I got out of college. I okay. worked. Yeah. You know, in advertising, I had to go to my day job, and so you know, getting up and going to work is, is is no big thing. I thought that I'd be able to work more at home, uh, which wasn't the case because you're doing a daily show. And in the beginning, you know, it wasn't as organized, obviously, as it came to be. And it was sort of the monologue and all the bits eventually evolved. Uh, but it was, you know, basically a nine to whatever job. Okay. You know, um, you know, you leave basically when the show was finished taping, unless you had something else to do. So when, when was that? Was that 1992? Is that 1992? Yeah. Okay. So now I see on your IMDb, which is <laughs> I'll tell you, I, you know, it's funny. I don't when people sometimes don't put stuff on IMDb, I get worried because a lot of times that's your own for me, my sense of well, reference. I, I don't know who puts that on there. I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't have yeah. stuff. I mean, I don't enter things there. I, I know, it's not weird stuff. But now, but you were a head writer eventually. Yeah. Now, now, how long you were on there for a while? So for the first few years, you, you started just as a writer or a script supervisor. Or what, what was your opening position? Well, Jay had never wanted head writers in the beginning uh, because he always thought if the show's not going well, the head writer's going to be the first guy that gets fired. Okay. Didn't. So we were always kind of just under the radar. But because of uh, you know, the 15 years of advertising experience that I had and the production experience, I sort of came became sort of the de facto head writer. And because I was, I think, the oldest of the writers there. Okay. Uh, you know, I was 41 when I came out here in 92. So... I was the one informally in charge. Then in 93, when Letterman jumped to CBS and the competition became stiffer, Jay brought on uh, this great writer named Joe Toplin, who had worked for Letterman, and he and I became co-head writers. Okay. And because Joe, this was my first television job. I mean, I knew how to write a joke. You know, I knew how to get work done, but I'd never never worked on the show before. So, you know, Joe had the show experience, how to get things done, you know, how to get bits done. So I learned a lot from him. And he stayed until, I think, 90 and then when he left, I became sole head writer. And so from 95 to 2009, when Jay went off the air, I was the 
the now, writer of the show. What is the difference between just because it's always funny because people also because we'll talk about your documentary where you did everything, you're doing everything, you direct, <laughs> produce, and everything, and there's different hats you put on. But as as a, what is the difference between a writer and the head writer? And it does is a lot more responsibility. Do you feel a lot more heat, or what's I mean, what's the difference? Well, I mean, a writer obviously has to sit in his office, sit in his or her office, because uh, we did have a, a couple of really great female writers on the show. Um, churn out jokes all day. I mean, that's what you do as a writer. Right. You know, the head writer is the guy who knocks on the office door and says, what are you up to? Okay. <laughs> I need material for this. It's mostly scheduling. Uh, as I got more involved in producing the bits, I had less and less time to actually write, which is regrettable because I certainly missed that. I was like my, it got me into the business and I still love to write. But, uh, you know, unless you're doing it every day, it becomes a muscle that gets a little... Uh, not toned, I guess okay. I should say. But it was like we had, and Jay would do the monologue, go to commercial, come back from monologue, and then we'd have this f- six minute block of something that had to be filled. You know, whether it was Monday with headlines. Maybe we'd go out and do a jaywalking. Maybe we'd do some other scripted piece. Uh, we'd, we'd, we'd send a correspondent to c- cover some event. I was the one really to schedule all that stuff, to, to, to assign who was going to do it, or to do it myself, and make sure that it was done and prepared in time and funny, or as funny as it could be. Now, was the chain of command basically the writer, you assign it, then it comes to you, you go over it, and then you take it to Jay, and he would go over it? Is that how it would do? It would be like, basically, because it's like drafts somewhat. I mean, it's, you know, you're like, you're the the right. main, it's like a restaurant. There's a floor manager, there's a general <laughs> manager, and there's an owner. Yeah. And it's true. If there's a an issue or something has to change with the menu, we'll go through this person and then go up to the, so is that what would happen? You would sit there, or, I mean, would you have long meetings? Would you have to sit there with Jay? Would you have long meetings together before the show, or? It evolved to where we would meet every day okay. in the morning, usually about 8.30 uh, before everybody got in to go over what we had, what we were going to do that day. Jay liked little uh, film tape pieces within the monologue. We called them drop-ins. Uh, whether it was uh, manipulating the footage or uh, you know, doing a little sh- sh- piece that we had to shoot that day. But we would go over that. And also then we would pitch ideas what's coming up for the week or for the following weeks. Hey, Jay, we'd like to cover this event with this correspondent. What do you think? Or we've got this idea for this bit. What do you think? Here are some of the sample jokes. So he- once he would sign off on that, we'd do it. And then the finished product, we would run by him and also by our executive producer, Debbie Vickers. Usually tapes. Okay. Like a jaywalk or if we're out shooting something with, uh, I did a lot of bits with Tom Green. Okay. You know, we would go out in the field, shoot those, edit those, show it to Jay and to, and to our executive producer, get notes, and then schedule it in the show. And then rehearsal day, we'd run it, see if it got laughs on the floor. If it got laughs on the floor, fine, we'll leave it alone. If not, then we'd go back in the edit before the show started and tweak it a little okay. bit. Okay. Now, did you, seeing that you had the film background, and I mean, I'm sure the mm-hmm. technology's changed a lot. Sure. Did, but did you get to have more of a hand in some of the short things like sit there did you get to mech- throw some of your muscle like your you know like the production like I know how to do this did you get did you get any directing things like that during that or like just to direct those things because you have the background in film well yeah I mean you having a little bit of a background at least you're not a stranger when you're on a set and there's an actor you know I had to direct uh, some some of these Hollywood people they needed to do bits for the show so I'm here telling Mel Gibson what to do okay. I spent a whole day with, with Brad Pitt going around house to house uh, you know telling him uh, <laughs> you know always stand here say this do that you know it's, it's weird uh, 
nothing that you learn in school is going to prepare you for that. That's really, you know, on-the-job training. And I still, you know, find that to some extent being kind of intimidating. It, it's, it's a difficult thing to do for me. Right, okay. Uh, but, yeah, having that experience. But, but it was mostly the editing. That's where I felt as comfortable as I did in my joke writing. Okay. Uh, directing, working with actors, that's a little out of my... I'll do it, and I'm okay at it. It's, it's out of my comfort zone. If I have a choice to do it, I would let somebody else do it. Uh, but it, but the editing I love. Okay, so just because it's, it's really amazing because, I mean, the editing, you don't really think how amazing it is. I did a film short years ago called Steve Cooper, Not So Funny Guy. I played a comic who was just starting out and we improv the whole thing and I improv the whole thing. We shot it downstairs at E and I was just like, okay, it's just footage. But when the editor, the guy who directed this guy, Trevor Hoff, came back and showed me it, I was just like, holy, holy crap. I mean, it was it went it went from being and this might be funny to he, I mean it was before the office was around but he did a, those kind of cuts and it was mm -hmm. documentary style and I, it's it's editors they don't get they don't get as much credit as they should because I mean they can just pop up oh. a piece so amazing you yeah. go wow yeah I mean I I would always get what I edited to a certain point and then I'd give it to my editor to make it good okay. <laughs> Uh, the editing became really, as the technology evolved, I mean, we would go out and shoot, say, a jaywalk. We'd do, like, a couple hours of tape, and I'd get the VHS with the time code, and I'd sit down there and, and make my handwritten notes, this looks good, and, and then mark the ins and the outs on paper, give that to the editor. But then when Avid came out, I was able to get... A, avid for my laptop computer right. I'd be able to get the footage and I'd just pull what I thought was funny and then give that to the editor okay uh, I love that that must be amazing too. it's so much easier you so know? much easier and then if there was time the editor's too busy so I said well let me go back in let me do another cut of it so I would go, go polish it up a little bit maybe put it in order and then by the end of uh, you know my tenure the Tonight Show I was doing pretty good cuts okay and then the editor would come in and just make it better now during all those years because you were the show for how long I was with Joe I Jay from 92, so when he was guest hosting... It's 17 years. Yeah, well, 17 years from 92 to, uh, yeah, were you ever? Were you ever, because uh, you're, in, you're in the studio, were you ever in, in awe of a guest that came in? Because, I mean, but like if someone, you went, wow, a, a little nervous around them? Because sometimes people get very, you know, like, wait, you know, they don't know what to say around Was anyone that actually, in, you were just like, oh, man. Like, for me, if I saw Springsteen, I'd be like, oh, <laughs> what do I talk about Springsteen? Oh, my God. You know, it's like, was there anyone that ever did that to you? Well, as a musician, you know, more of my musical idols, I mean, when you see uh, uh, Paul McCartney and, and Ringo Starr, right. you know, from the Beatles, uh, to me, it just... Uh, that was my childhood so to see those guys and you know like the Almond Brothers people like that uh, you know I, I don't find that, I, I mean I, I'm thrilled to see them but, but the awe thing the, the, the shock is like people like uh, um, like Rico and right. and, uh, and Paul okay so now, now this is I don't know if this is right but it says you wrote on a Stephen Schripper show Hungry yeah, Steve Sharippa, he uh, was a guest on the show back when he was doing The Sopranos. He was a great guest, and, and people said, well, look, we're going to make him a correspondent. So, oh, by the way, real quick, did you work with, you worked with, uh, he was on my show a few weeks ago, Brian Herslinger? Yeah. Yeah, his movie comes out, he's directed a movie come out May 10th with uh, Joe Piscopo. Right, 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 and right. And he co-wrote with a Philly comic from Marlon, Jay Black, but no, Brian said he was on the show, and it's funny when I thought up, and he said correspondent. No, Brian was a correspondent. Actually, we discovered him uh, when we were doing a jaywalk. I think we were doing the Baywatch auditions. Uh, Baywatch was looking for another character, so we went to the Oakwood Apartments here in L.A. and knocked on doors and, and said, 
you know, pretend to, to run slow or to pretend saving somebody. You know, that was our bit. Okay. Uh, actually, we got the, what's her name? Jessica Beal. All right. She was living there at the time, undiscovered. And, That's funny. And she was in it. But Brian was one of the guys, too. So, so Steve, Steve Schripper was So doing Steve, yeah. Steve, we started doing a bit called Judgmental Bastard. Okay. I don't know if I could say that on the air. Oh, yeah, you, you can. can bleep it out. But what that was uh, is... Um, I was riding around in a van with Steve one day. We were shooting something else. And, and he's looking out the window going, he sees a guy walking down the sidewalk. He's there, oh, look at that guy. I bet, he, I bet you he lives in his parents' basement. And he's got 50 bucks <laughs> in his pocket and he hasn't had sex in two years. So I said, Steve, that's a bit. And we, we did it as a bit. Streets in New York, Steve will look at somebody, make a judgment about him, and then we talk to the person and see if Steve was right or not. Okay. So we did, I can't tell you how many dozens of bits bits like that but then he did this other cooking show and he just brought me on to uh to do that now do you know anything about cooking no okay no, I, yeah my idea is cook of cooking is opening up a, a can of peanut butter and a jar of peanut butter and standing over the sink with a with a cracker that's it okay so so you the, the tonight show's done and you yeah. move on and now you started doing it looks like a few documentary shorts but there was a few while you're still with the Tonight Show, if, the, if this is right, right, the sailing, the Star India, Doors of Florence, Friends yep. of Independence, you, you, because Temple, you know, said how there was a lot. You made a documentary about the, the your brother. Sure. Were you had were you always a fan of documentaries? I mean, because I love documentaries. Well, I mean, I always enjoyed documentaries, but I never really went out of my way to. Uh, I didn't like them as much as scripted, and I still, if I have a preference, <laughs> it's weird to say, you know, uh, uh, having done a, a number of documentaries that uh, I like, uh, you know, a good story. Right. And not that documentaries don't have good stories, but uh, I find them too real, and it's, it, it's sort of like it's not a... I'm working on a documentary. I don't want to watch other documentaries. Right, okay. You know what I mean? Like, even when I was doing comedy, it's like, well, let me see something tragic. Oh, yeah, see, but that's me. Like, <laughs> people are like, oh, did you see this comedy special? I'm like, uh, yeah, no, I don't yeah. want to, you know? And she, my girlfriend's like, oh, such and such coming. I'm like, yeah, you know? It's like my friend's on Letterman on Friday, you know, and he's a good, he's from Cherry Hill also. And she's like, we can watch it together. <laughs> and she's like, what? She's your friend. And I go, I know, but it's like, I don't, it yeah. doesn't, I, it, I don't, it bores, I guess it bores me. Or, and I think from years I did comedy for so long that you've seen, you've seen your share, for me, I've seen my yeah. share of stand-up performances. And I used to host a show out here called Cooper's Angels that had, you know, eight girls on it. And people are like, are you going to watch my set in the room? I'm like, no, I don't, you know, I'll come out, I'll watch my time, or I'll come in and give you the light. Because I think you just get a little uh, tired of it. No, that's it. That's it. I, I, you know, it's good every now and then to, I guess, refresh yourself and and, and watch. Like I'd watch a documentary just to say, okay, I heard that, hear that this is a really good okay. one. What can I learn from this? Now, as a matter of course, no. I'll, I'll watch Game of Thrones. Okay, <laughs> I haven't seen that. That's good. You know, I, I'm really. Do you watch Southland? Yeah. God. No, it's, uh, not Southland. Homeland. I watch. Okay, Homeland's great. And South Park. Okay, so it's a combination <laughs> two. Southland is that? That's uh? uh, a cop thing in L.A. Oh, it's okay. Actually, it's really good. But okay, so now, how did you start? Because the first few before, because your latest one's a feature, right? And but your first three, how did you come up with the ideas for them? And I mean, and what made you sit there and go, "I'm going to do a documentary"? Well, again, it's the technology. Uh, when I graduated from college, everything was 16 millimeter film, which is very expensive uh, to shoot and process and to edit. And but you know, now it's uh, I went out and bought a Panasonic HD camera, and I had this camera, and I uh, 
I love tall ships. What can okay. I tell you? I had the, the pleasure. We shot a bit on the uh, the HMS Bounty, uh, the ship that, that sunk in, in, uh, in the storm in Sandy okay. uh, earlier this, uh, this year or last year. And uh, we sailed for three days on that. And to me, that was another dream come true. And I knew that uh, in San Diego, they had the surprise down there in the Star of India, the surprise of the ship from Master and Commander, another one of my favorite films. Okay. So I s- basically talked myself into sailing on the Star of India, telling them I'd make a uh, documentary for them. So that's cool, though. So that's I brought in a couple of my Tonight Show friends. We all went down there, and we shot the film, and uh, got into a couple of festivals, won a couple of awards. So to me, that was very encouraging. And that's why I uh, continued to make films. Yeah, and, uh, the door, Doors of Florence. What's that, what's that about? I was uh, on vacation with my wife in Florence with my little mini DV camera, and I said, I want to make a film. Geez, these doors look interesting. All the doors and all the houses were interesting, so I just decided not to shoot the normal, normal tourist stuff okay. and just shoot all these doors. And when I got back, I just edited it together into a very fast one-minute Peace. Okay. And then Friends of Independence? Friends of Independence, uh, my brother and sister-in-law work for the National Park Service at Independence Hall. And they have an organization called the Friends of Independence, volunteer organization who helps, you know, provide other things that uh, that the park needs, uh, you know, tours or other things uh, that the government can't, you know, buy for the park. Okay. You know, they're sort of like docents for the park, and they wanted a promotional film, so so we went and did that. Now, do you, do you put any of your comedy in these, or is it all just straight-up tr- documentary? Well, you try to, at least, if somebody says something amusing and funny, you put it in the film because you know it's going to get a laugh. Okay. But for those, that was more drawing on my advertising background. Uh, for, for the start of uh, India 1, it was like, to get people to be volunteers for the ship uh, or to contribute money to for the upkeep of the ship. So it's a kind of feel-good, very exciting, people climbing the masts, right. sunsets through the uh, the spars, that sort of thing. Very kind of emotional, evocative. It's funny, film. it's funny when you said Star of India because I used to my ex-wife used to live in the gas lamp and one of our neighbors, he would he's a detective now up in uh, Ventura but he used to volunteer because he had a background he used to race sailboats in Japan and it was just funny he would love it in fact I went to his wedding on the Star of India which is where you did the documentary oh yeah so now your latest documentary The Missing Piece okay Missing Piece right tell tell, give just give what the synopsis is of this okay well if I would ask you put you on the spot here if you were to say the first painting that comes into your mind the most famous painting in the world what would you say the Mona Lisa Mona Lisa most people don't know that the Mona Lisa was stolen. I, don't, I, didn't, I didn't know that. Exactly. Uh, I didn't know it either uh, until I discovered, uh, I read a single sentence in a book um, 37 years ago. Okay. And uh, it, it kind of changed the course of my life. Uh, the film is about the man who stole the Mona Lisa, an Italian named Vincenzo Perugia, who walked into the Louvre, this is in 1911, took it off the wall, Took it back to his apartment in Paris and actually had the Mona Lisa for two and a half years. Really? Yeah. So he just, I mean, I mean, I guess security is a lot different. Than the <laughs> yeah, just a little. But he just, he just walked in and like, no one, I mean, was it as famous as it is now back then? It was famous among people that knew art. The average person didn't know what it was. Okay. In fact, in my film, I have a, a little uh, scene in there where I show the headline from the Washington Post where it says, Art Treasure Stolen front page and then on the second page they show the picture of the stolen Mona Lisa well the Washington Post put in the wrong picture okay. they put in <laughs> one of these nude copies a, a nude copy of the Mona Lisa 
So, so if you can imagine back then, if the Washington Post didn't know what the right painting was, odds are the average person didn't either. So uh, the theft really did <laughs> make it uh, world famous. Now, you said it changed, you know, changed your yeah. life. What, what, were you just fascinated with this guy? Or what? how did that change your life? Because, I mean, it's, it's something... And it's so before our time, 1911, and it's something that, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, it's great. I mean, I didn't know that, and I, yeah. it's, and, but it's just funny back then people really didn't know it. But how did it change your life? I mean, how did, how, what well, was it effect on you? Here's where we come full circle. Okay. Again, with these weird connections. Um, so I was two years uh, out of Temple University working in advertising. Still wanted to be in show business. I, I wanted to be a, a screenwriter. I wanted to be a director. And I was always thinking of ideas for films. And, and then one day I happened to open a book that I had about Leonardo da Vinci and I read the sentence that the painting was stolen by an Italian laborer and he had it for two years. And I thought, first of all, why didn't I know this? And second of all, this is going to make a great movie. Okay. Nobody knows this. Nobody's ever told this story. I'm going to write this. This is going to be my script. So I went to the Philadelphia Library, did tons of research. And, and by the way, people back then, it was, uh, yeah, it was microfiche. You know, like, and, yeah, it was awful. It was just something. Yeah. Be like, your eyes would come out. You're like, uh. Yeah, actually, I show that in my film, and I have a line in there that always gets a laugh. It's, uh, you know, this was 1976, back when you had to actually leave the house to get information. <laughs> That's true, man. I, uh, I look at it now. I go, it must be so easy for college kids now. Like, do a term paper. Like, when I back and I go by uh, my girlfriend's oh. niece and nephew, and they're on their laptop, and I'm like, man, and especially I went to school in New Jersey, you had to walk around the, the lake when it was snowing and sit there, and you, the copiers weren't even as good. You couldn't copy and paste no, anything. Right. It's like you just had to sit there and go, holy crap, and write it down. That's and right. Because you, And there was no little computers that you could type on. I mean, yeah, my right. first one was the brother that was, you know, had a <laughs> screen that you could actually put your stuff in the screen and had a little disc, but it was it was just different. Oh, I remember that one. I was going to buy that one. <laughs> Yeah, I have um, I have notebooks filled with my chicken scratch that I can't even read now uh, because I couldn't afford the Xerox. Xerox's right, copiers right. were like were very expensive at the time, a quarter a page, and it wasn't the the the, the black on white. It was reversed. Right, there were negative images. <laughs> but this is how old folks. This is back in the. Uh, <laughs> this is back when you actually had to day. work. Yeah. So okay, so now you you saw it and you said now you you start doing the research. And I start to try to write this thing, and I try, and I try, and I take yeah. courses. What's it going to be? Let's talk about people. Is it going to be documentary? Or is it going to be actually it's like going a, to be a scripted film? Scripted okay, so you're going to go for the feature. Okay, going for the feature. And I'm writing, and I'm writing, and I'm not getting anywhere. Or I get somewhere, and I come back the next day and read it, and go, "This sucks," and I throw it out. And I was finding it very difficult. You know, being in advertising, where you got to crank out an ad or a uh, you know a commercial 30 second commercial it's fairly easy to know you know oh, yeah. when it works and when you're done it's it's bite size a whole script to me was way beyond my ability and i tried and i literally tried for 30 some odd years so i would keep coming back to it and out of frustration steve um i took that correspondence course in joke writing I said, okay, 120-page script is impossible. Here's something, maybe this will, you know, clear my mind. It's this correspondence course on joke writing. And that I got good in, and that took me to Hollywood. Okay, so now when you were, you said you kept going back to it, were you, were you just getting, I mean, what, at that time, when you're trying to do the feature, what was the longest you had? I mean, like, lots, a lot of times people will try to write a script, and they'll get, like, 
14 pages in and I'll go, oh man, you know, I got to start over. I got to start over. Yeah. What was the, I mean, were you getting, were you making progress or were you just getting frustrated as you wrote it? Well, I actually, uh, I think twice I got through for the 420 pages, but you know, I look at it and it was like rubbish. It okay. wasn't anything that I would even want to go back and rewrite. Uh, after that, I did a few shorter things. I worked with a, with a, a friend on, on another feature film, uh, and, and we actually finished that. But I would keep coming back to this, going, why can't I write this? It's because I basically didn't know who the guy was. He was an Italian 100 years ago, living in Italy, in an obscure part of Italy. He lived in France in, in, 19, in the early 1900s. He stole the painting. He had it for two years in his apartment. Then he brought it to Italy, claiming that he was a patriot. Okay. Okay. They found out that possibly you're not so patriotic. You want money for this. They gave him a little slap on the wrist, and, and they uh, released him. But he became sort of a folk hero in Italy. And I thought, well, this is what the movie is. The guy's kind of a folk hero. But because I didn't know enough about the guy or who he was, um, I had to uh, make stuff up. And just by making it up, it sounded phony. Okay. okay. Is there a phone? I thought I heard a phone. Yeah, I heard okay. a phone too. Okay, it must have hung up. Okay, so it's not only a call. Let's take that call. Yeah, up. yeah, we don't have calls. I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> so, so it sounded phony to you. It sounded phony and sounded made up, and it, and uh, I, I really wanted to know why this guy did it. I kind of wanted it to be a, uh, like a biography. Okay. Like a film biography of this guy, but I didn't have the details. So I would constantly look for new stuff, and when the internet came along, I would Google search. And, and one day in 2008, I Google searched, and up popped an article written by uh, an interview uh, done by his daughter. And I go, this guy's got a daughter? Okay. She was 84 years old, living in Italy. She told the story of, of her father. She was up in Dumenza, Italy, which is by the, by the Swiss border. She told her father's story, and it's like, light bulb goes off. You know, I had my camera. I was making the short films. Right, and you you had the experience from college also in the documentaries. Right, documentary background, and and I had the stuff. I, you know, I moved with the Tonight Show. I, I had time off where I could I could work on this stuff, and uh, my wife and I decided to pursue this, and we went uh, and we we interviewed her. Now, how did you go about getting in touch with her? Because someone, first of all, <laughs> someone, most people who are 84 don't have email. Like, my mom has email, right. but she always forgets it. And she's like, well, what's your email? Like, I, I can't. She goes, I should listen to your radio show. And I'm thinking, I tell her, it's, you know, www.indy100.com. But I know she's going to go to, like, the old hi-fi and put on, like, 100. Right. And it's going to be one of those Steve Spanish Ryan. stations. And she's going to be like, oh, my God, he learned Spanish. And his voice got deep. And so, for an 84 lady, especially in Italy, now, you don't speak it. You don't speak I don't Italian, speak Italian. You know, had I spent the 30 years where I was trying to write the script learning Italian, okay. I think I would have been better off. <laughs> uh, learning Italian and French, I think I would have been better off. But, again, come back to connections. In 2006, The Tonight Show sent me and my team over to the Olympics in Torino, Italy. Okay. We met this lovely young woman there who was working for NBC named Letizia Rubino. She was, she's from Sicily. But she lives in Philadelphia. All right. And she went to Temple University. So there's the connection. So when I started making the film, or at least the idea, it's like, oh, yeah. My question was, how do we get in touch with this woman in Italy? I'm not going to call her up. Right. And then, you know, the light bulb again goes off, Letizia. 
and she was wonderful. I mean, she's uh, she's become a producer on the film because of, of her uh, ability to charm people and to get us into places. Uh, she, we found the phone number. We Googled and actually found the, the phone number. I think she had to make a couple of calls to the, to did the, to the area. Speak, did she speak Italian? Oh, well, she's Italian. Okay, so yeah. She's okay. A, yes. So she became like a uh, adopted granddaughter to Celestina Perugia, the, the thief's daughter, who, if you go to Central Casting and say, I want a little Italian grandmother. They couldn't do better than this woman. All right. And she was the most <laughs> kind, wonderful, sweetest woman. And when we went to see her, she took us into into her home and uh, and just just opened up to us. The only problem was I knew more about her father than she did. All right. I'd been studying the story for 30 years, and I knew everything that he did that was out there. She knew some things about his family life, uh, obviously, uh, you know, how many other brothers there were, and, and, and things that I didn't know. But, you know, why he did it, where he was, how he did it, she didn't know. Because he died when she was a year and a half old. All right, so yeah, so there's not that connection. Yeah. Right, and she tells this wonderful story that as her father was coming home from work to celebrate his birthday... Uh, it was October 8th, 1925, I think. Uh, he was coming up the, the, the path of their home, and the mother said, run to Papa, run to Papa. She ran to her father, and he dropped out of a heart attack. Wow. Right then and there. That's the story that she tells in God, the film. That doesn't, that doesn't affect your childhood. <laughs> no. So, I mean, she's very emotional, and she cries uh, quite a bit whenever she, she thinks about her her father because she didn't know and she grew up raised by her father's brother who back then uh it was very common for the brother of the family to step up and then marry the widow okay okay so she was raised by her her father's brother and she didn't know until she was 20 that her father stole the mona lisa that's crazy so you're interviewing her now what else goes into making this film i mean because of course you don't have stock footage of him stealing or do you find stock footage or because it was even no there's no stock footage i mean there's uh again through another connection uh i knew that i would she wanted the the truth and i wanted the truth that's what we had in common we both wanted to find the true story of why he stole the painting so how am i going to do this uh I contacted a friend who had worked at The Tonight Show who moved to Paris, uh, Anne Clement, and and she, uh, an American, uh, I think she's a native French, but speaks English and speaks French fluently, I said, is there any way that you can get us into the Louvre? And she said, I'll work on that, but I I have a full-time job, but I've got two friends who live across the street from the Louvre. Okay. Meredith and Stefan. Meredith's from Philadelphia. Another Philadelphia connection. It's unbelievable. They went over to the Louvre archives, to the French National Archives, to every archive in Paris, and literally uploaded 1,500 to 2,000 photographs that they took of the original documents. Okay. Court reports. Wow. Uh, police and uh, police interrogations of the thief, of, of, of other suspects, photographs. Uh, his original mugshot, which I had never seen published anywhere. All right. So there's, they sent me this treasure trove, and that's what I used as the basis for the film. Okay, so now you you get all your you get all your facts and your in your material together. So now you just sit there and go, okay, now I got to string this together and start right. editing. Or or was that how did you go about doing that? Uh, well, that was basically it. I, I went and interviewed anybody that I'd ever read who wrote on the subject. Okay. Uh, Milt Estero, who's the publisher and editor of Art News Magazine, wrote one of the very first books that I read on this. So he was my first call, because I thought that his uh, couple of chapters in a book called The Art Stealers really, um, 
you know, he knew a lot about the theft. So I interviewed him, I interviewed uh, art crime experts, FBI people, just anybody that would fill in, fill in the story. Uh, and then we started doing, uh, you know, the an I did a lot of animation, because you're right, there, there isn't a lot of uh, uh, footage. There's no footage of him. But there were a couple of pictures, so I did some kind of Monty Python. Okay. You know, if you go on my website, uh, Mona, Lisa, yeah, Mona Lisa Missing dot com, uh, we have the trailer on there and some uh, clips from the film. You'll see the style of the film, uh, sort of lighthearted and, and Monty Pythonish, but but very serious and very um, uh, actually kind of moving because we did find in the uh, Florence archives her father's letters. Okay. That he wrote to his parents, and in those we sort of. He sort of admits why he stole the painting. Okay. And this is Celestina. She didn't know this. I had her daughter there with us. Okay. And she's reading these letters going, oh, my God, my mother, she's going to, oh. But we showed them to Celestina. And what happens, you'll just have to see the film. Now, how, I know you've been hitting some festivals. Yes. How have, how has the, the crowd reaction been? Has it been good? Great. And, now, what festivals have you been in so far? Uh, Mill Valley up in Northern California, Austin, Philadelphia. Uh, we were in Salem. Uh, we won uh, Best uh, Documentary at the Amelia Island Film Festival, Audience Choice Award at uh, the RXSM Festival in Austin. Um, San Joaquin, you got a special award. And we're going to be coming to the Beverly Hills Film Festival here in Los Angeles on May 11th. 3.15 in the afternoon. So what my friends who uh, who don't like to come out at night have no excuse not to see the film. What day is that? That is a Saturday. And now where can they get information about that? You can go to Beverly uh, film, Beverly Hills Film Festival.com and there'll be links to buying tickets. Uh, so that's 3.15 in the afternoon, May 11th. Now, um, I just have a question. At the Grauman's Chinese Theater. Okay, there. cool. I'm going to be yeah. in town. I sh I'm gonna try, I'll try to make it. All right. I'll definitely try to make it because that'd be cool. And yeah. I, I, love, I love driving to North Hollywood and just jumping the subway <laughs> and then you just walk there because you have to deal with the traffic. You're used, you, you've been used to your career, you know, getting doing the jokes, writing the jokes, the automatic satisfaction, okay? Did you find this project the fulfilling or just a different feeling when you put it all together because now it's not like if a joke doesn't work ah, so <laughs> what but this is a full yeah. I mean, how long is this movie the movies uh, feature length we also have a, a, a one hour TV version okay so how no, how is it when you I mean is it is it a little and uh, when Horrible. you get it done, do you sit there and go, "Oh my God, what if people?" And it shows people are liking it because it's getting, you know, the the choice awards and all that. Right. But when you got it done, did you sit there and just go, "What if this sucks?" And and, and I mean, just and just to, I would have a panic attack. No, exactly. I, I and I did. We had a few uh, screenings in Philadelphia and in New York, New York before I finished the film, and. It was very instructive because you could tell when people were fidgeting in their seats. Okay, this part of the film needs to be okay. eliminated or cut back, but. It's still very nerve-wracking. Uh, one of the things that, that I do find uh, uh, enjoyable is that it does get laughs. Okay. You know, there's a couple of things in there that people actually laugh <laughs> audibly. Okay. <laughs> and it's like, okay. Uh, but that, that was another problem. As I'm watching the film and it gets more serious, then it doesn't get laughs. Then I start getting the flops wet. It's like, it's not getting laughs. Right. But then I think, hey, <laughs> idiot, it's not supposed to with this <laughs> It's not. It's not a comedy. I know, but, but I can't. I can't. And you're used to the comedy, so it's anything. You probably take care of like, well, well, you know, what? What am I going to do? Right. Not laughing. Plus, I narrate it, and and I'm sick of hearing myself because okay. I'm sure your listeners are right now. But but I don't like to. I don't watch my film. I don't. The screening. I'll stay to make sure it's in focus and it sounds good, and then I'll come back 
an hour and a half later. Any more documentaries do you think in your future? Oh, I don't know. You I'm don't so know. tired. Did, is it an ex- was it exhausting? Well, it took me 36 years to get this one done. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm 62, so you figure, Steve, in another 36 years, if I do another documentary, it'll probably be something about oatmeal. <laughs> <laughs> give give the uh, give the information again to the people so they can find it find its, its trailers and their website and all that. All right, the, the website is uh, Mona Lisa Missing dot com. We're also on Facebook and on Twitter at Mona Lisa Stolen. Uh, it's playing at the Beverly Hills, Beverly Hills Film Festival, the Grauman Chinese Theater, uh, Saturday, May eleventh at three fifteen. Well, I want to thank you for coming on, Joe. It Thanks was, for uh, me. It was great. I, say I love I love when I have writers, and now you, <laughs> you did comedy, now you did this, and it just it shows that people who write comedy and do comedy, that's one thing you, you can always branch out of different things, you know. Like, and that's what's that's what's great about this business. And so, yeah, so it was just a pleasure meeting you. Uh, people, follow me at Twitter at Cooper Talk. That's at Cooper Talk, like the name of the show. Also, send me an email uh, hundred dot com uh, cooper at indie100.com if you want to find past episodes I have about 135 episodes up on iTunes or Stitcher Radio just sit there and type in Cooper Talk one word because if you put in Cooper Space Talk you get Anderson Cooper stuff and it gets all crazy so you're not going to find it so that's coopertalk.com and please send me an email because I miss talking to people and Facebook um, you know you can add me I'm, I don't really I, I, I don't know you know who adds me or not but it's, it's all good and I would promote a show coming up but I don't have any shows booked I don't have any shows. But anyway, so I want to thank you again. And go go check out uh, Joe on his uh, website because mm-hmm. it's a, it like a great movie. The Missing Piece. The Missing Piece. And I want to thank you people for listening. I have some great guest lines up for the next month. Keep on listening. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. And stay tuned to the next hour. <laughs>